Well, please go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, if you've been in our church at all since Easter, we have been talking about the future. As we went through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, we've been learning about what is yet to come. The study of eschatology, we call it. The study of the last things, of the end times. And we've learned a lot of things. We've talked about what's going to happen after you die, where, where you might go. We talked about the rapture. Hopefully we got some people here saying, Maranatha, we're ready for Jesus to come and get us so we will be with him always. We also talked about this great and terrible time that is coming, the day of the Lord, a time of judgment. And we've warned people and we've tried to make people get ready by repenting of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But I felt as we were going through some of this about the end times, I felt like I was sitting a little bit at the at the kids' table wondering what the grown-ups are talking about. Does anybody else remember that experience from your from your youth? Now I was the oldest out of the cousins at the family gatherings. And so I had kind of gotten over the food fights and the laughing at anatomical sounds, and I was more, you know, with my ear, you know, at attention. You know, what are those adults talking about over there? You know? I mean, I feel like we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do down here on planet Earth, and we're kind of looking up at the sky like, well, what's God going to do? Like, what's really happening with this whole end time scenario? I wish I could hear what the, what the adults, what the grown-ups are saying, right? And so I thought before we moved on from eschatology, we needed to go straight to the source, and we needed to kind of flip it. Instead of from our perspective looking up, let's get it from heaven's perspective looking down. And that's why we're going to go to the book of Revelation. Please grab your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation with me and get your fingers warmed up, my friends. Maybe crack a few knuckles because we are going to try to go through this entire book, 22 chapters, and take it as one teaching, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just start right at the beginning. Revelation chapter 1 We'll start right there in verse 1. I don't know if you've ever read this book before or not, but here we go. We are going to look at the book that God clearly gave us to help us think about the future more than any other place in Scripture. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay, so notice it doesn't say this is the book of Revelation about all kinds of crazy future events that no one can really figure out. It says it's the revelation of, what does it say right away, my friends? We're going to get interactive here this morning. We're going to stay awake. The revelation of, geez, it's a revelation of a who, not of a what. The future isn't a when. The future isn't a what's going to happen. The future is a who. So unfortunately, many people, when I say we're going to do the book of Revelation, they're like, great, because that's been a super confusing book, and I can never tell what's going on. There's nothing confusing about the clarity that we get about who Jesus is in this book. You're going to see Jesus more clearly in the book of Revelation than you will anywhere else in the entire scripture. This isn't a book of like confusing end times. How's it all going to go down? The point of this book is I want you to see Jesus as he's truly been the whole time, as he's going to be in the future unveiled. Like there's been a veil over him. Like he's been hidden. He's been mysterious to us this entire time. And now we're going to take the veil off and you get to really see the glory of Jesus Christ. Does that sound good to anybody? That's what this book is all about. Clarity and understanding who Jesus is. It's the revelation. So we should retitle this sermon right now. We're already off to a bad start. You got one of these crazy looking handouts with the five boxes? Anybody got one of these? See how it says the book of Revelation up there? Just cross that out. That's a bad title. We're going to retitle this right now. Bad title. This isn't about some confusing book about the future. Let's title it the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this is. This is clarity about our Lord and Savior and who he is and what he's going to be like when we see him and enjoy him forever. So let's keep reading here the introduction. We got to get a little bit of a preview before we dive into the book. It says he made it known this revelation of Jesus by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So you might want to write that down there just in the top of your handout if you're taking notes. The author of the book is John. And this is John the apostle, John the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, we've already maybe are familiar with some of the other books that he wrote that are in our Bible, like the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd 
John. And he uses a lot of the same ways of writing, even some of the same vocabulary here in the book of Revelation. So we're very familiar with the author here of this book. Verse 3, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So I'm being blessed right now just by reading this. It's a powerful book. And blessed are those who hear. You're welcome. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So one thing you always want to do when you come to a book of the Bible, and you're, you know, there's 66 different books, and they, there's different genres, there's different styles of writing going on in the holy pages of Scripture. And so the genre here, it tells us, verse 3, is prophecy. So right under the author is John. The genre is prophecy. This is a prophetic word given to John, a vision that he has to tell us about the, who Jesus really is. And even the Apostle John, I want you to get the picture of the Apostle John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in the Gospel of John, he describes himself leaning back against Jesus at the Last Supper. So comfortable, so casual with his Lord Jesus Christ, who he had followed around for three years on the night before he died, that he would just recline on his chest, so to speak, so comfortable with Jesus Christ that they would physically touch one another as men, and it wasn't awkward or weird at all because they were that close to one another. See? And now he is going to see Jesus in a way that is different than how he knew him before. And he gets the vision, and, and uh, just jump down to verse 12, and let's just see the veil is coming off. What is hidden is now being revealed. Here's Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, the voice that had just told John to write this down. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, lampstand is the symbol for the church, in the midst of the lampstands, there's one, and he's like a son of man. And he's clothed with a long robe. And he's got a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like they're, like they're glowing white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice, it was like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a waterfall, like the deafening roar of Niagara Falls. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I didn't say, hey, Jesus, great to see you again. Hey, buddy, how you doing? No, it was the same Jesus, but when I saw him now unveiled in all of his glory, I fell over like a dead man because this was overwhelming to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's just start this out here. First box of our chart, chapter 1, point number 1. We need to see Jesus unveiled in all his glory. We need to see Jesus unveiled in his glory. Jesus, if we remember him at Christmas time as a baby in a manger, sweet little baby Jesus, or if we think of him at Good Friday and Easter as a man dying on the cross, and we picture the crown of thorns and the blood and the nails, those are great memories to have of Jesus Christ, like memories you might have of your children as they were growing up, but your children are no longer kids anymore. They're, they're, they're adults, so to speak. Here is Jesus Christ now being seen as the risen Lord, as God exalted to the right hand of the Father in all of his splendor and majesty. This is how you should think of Jesus when you think of him. This is how he is right now in heaven. And John, he gets a glimpse into this glory of Jesus Christ. And what is his response? I mean, notice how many likes there are in his description. It's such an overwhelming image. Who could draw this? He can barely explain it to us. He's just trying to paint some pictures for us. But here's the main thing we need to see, that he fell like a dead man, like he couldn't even hold himself up anymore when he saw the glory of Jesus Christ. The disciple whom Jesus loved, who reclined on his breast when he was a man, but now unveiled in his glory. He can't even behold him. It's too much. Man, is this your view of Jesus Christ right here and all of his splendor? 
someone who if you saw, you would, you would just be overwhelmed by. And it says that he laid his right hand on me. Verse 17, he doesn't leave John there on the floor. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hey, I'm the living one, the eternal God, the I am that I am. And here's an amazing thing that I did. I became a man and I died, but I'm alive again now. And let me tell you what I've got. I've got the keys to death, and I've got the keys to Hades. I've got the keys to when people die, and I've got the keys to where people go when they die. I'm in charge. I'm the Lord. I am God. That's Jesus Christ right there, my friends. And if you and I don't picture Jesus as he's revealed to us here in this passage, if we don't have this thought of Jesus in our minds, we could be worshiping a God that we have made up rather than the real Jesus Christ. So let's make sure that when we hear the name Jesus, this is who we think of. And this double-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth, I don't know what your favorite part is of this glorious description. His face shining like the sun in full strength, i.e., picture the sun at its absolute brightest. His face is brighter than that. But he's got this sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and he starts to speak in chapters 2 and 3 this letter is written the the revelation of Jesus Christ is given to seven different churches and so we get seven little paragraphs you can see them broken up there if you start to look with your eyes through chapters 2 and 3 and these are seven real churches in, in Asia at that time we've got a map right here you can see the seven different churches, and it starts with Ephesus, and then it works its way up there to Pergamum, and then it works its way back down to Laodicea on the other side. And you can also see, if you look out to the left in the middle of the Aegean Sea a little bit, there's this island, this rock really there, called Patmos. That's where they've exiled John, because he's been doing so much preaching, particularly maybe in these churches here in Asia Minor. And so they exiled him out on a rock in the middle of the sea, so he couldn't keep telling people about Jesus. And now here Jesus comes to him on that rock with a letter for these seven churches, because John can't minister to them anymore. And so Jesus starts to tell these churches what he, what he really thinks about them. Every letter goes through the same format. It starts with a brief introduction of Jesus saying, here's who I am. Then he says, I know your works. And he says what he thinks about how they're doing. And then at the end, he encourages them to the one who conquers. Here's going to be your award. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the book of Revelation is for all Christian people at all times. But specifically, originally, it was written to these seven churches. And Jesus says what he really thinks about these seven different churches. And it's intense. It's very intense what Jesus says. In fact, let's just look at one of them for time's sake. Let's just go straight to the last one. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. We'll just go right to the last one, to the church in Laodicea. And, and here's Jesus. We'll, we'll see how he introduces himself, what he says about the church, and then how he encourages them with a promise of reward if they conquer. So start with me in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, the words of the amen. That's how he calls himself, the amen, because it's true. He really means it, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. Just think about that. Think about someone with eyes like fire, a sword coming out of his mouth, and his face shining like the sun. And the first thing he says to you is, I know your works. I know you. I know what you do. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Hey, I know you guys, and you guys are lukewarm, and you guys make me want to vomit. That would be a better translation of that, spit you out of my mouth. Now, as someone recently reacquainted with the experience of vomiting, okay, which is why I wasn't here. Uh, if I was just sick, I would be here, but I figured I would do you guys a favor and not come if I was vomiting. Can we all agree that was a good decision? That way, uh, you know, I mean, you guys put up with a lot during these sermons, but that would kind of kill it, I think. Uh, but, but here's Jesus vomiting right in the middle of the book of Revelation. Here's what he thinks about the church. I mean, can you imagine? Hey, I know you guys. Jesus, can you imagine if Jesus showed up 
with a message to our church. We got a message from John on Patmos, and here's what Jesus says about our church. Man, you'd be just working your way through the other churches. Who really cares about those guys? You get down to your church. Oh, well, actually, he said some mean things to some of those churches. That sounded pretty intense. I hope he's got nice things to say about us. What does he say about us? Oh, he wants to vomit us out of his mouth. Not exactly feeling the love there. I mean, Jesus is basically saying that the kind of Christianity that you're doing at your church repulses me. It disgusts me. And so he, he calls him out and he gets very specific. Verse 17, for you say, here's how you think of yourself. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And here's why I say this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm telling you this because I love you, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, maybe you've heard that passage before. Like Jesus is knocking on the door to your heart and he wants to come in and he wants to live in your heart. So ask Jesus into your heart. That's not what that verse is saying. He's knocking on the door of the church. He's so repulsed and grossed out by the hypocrisy of what's going on there at the church. He's not even with the people as they worship or open up the word. He's out in the parking lot knocking on the door of the church saying when you guys are ready to be zealous and you guys are ready to repent, then open the door and I'll come in and we can really start doing church because we're not even doing it right now. That's what he's saying. Now he puts an encouraging promise on the end of his letter, which he does with all of them. Verse 21, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, this one who endures to the end, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. An amazing promise. Jesus Christ is going to scoot over and let you come and sit with him on his throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Hey, he, he who has an ear, if you've got the Holy Spirit, will let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can you imagine? The message you get from Jesus Christ as he wants to vomit you out of his mouth so you better repent. You think, well, that's, you've got to probably have chosen the most intense one out of all these letters. They're not all like this. No, actually, they, they pretty much are. Does anybody know out of seven letters how many of them have a stinging rebuke tone to them like this one does? Five out of seven letters are rebuke from Jesus Christ. Vomiting out of his mouth. It, there's things he says that I would argue are even worse than that. This is what Jesus thinks about how these seven churches are doing. It's not a glowing report. There's only two churches where he says, keep doing what you're doing. And one of them he says, yeah, some of you guys are about to die to be faithful unto death. So that's not exactly a warm, fuzzy letter from Jesus either, right? And then to the other one he says, keep going with patient endurance and I will deliver you from this great tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. That's two of them are positive. Five of them are rebukes from Jesus to the church. What do you think Jesus would say to us here at Compass Bible Church? What would he say to the church in America, to the church here in our city of Huntington Beach? Let's get this down for our, our second point from chapters 2 and 3. As we see Jesus speaking to these churches, we need to see Jesus has high expectations for his people. Jesus isn't just happy that we're here this morning. He's not just so grateful that we decided to show up. Jesus isn't just thrilled that we're singing worship songs or that we've stopped cussing a little bit or that we're trying to do some more good things in our life. No, Jesus is expecting all out, 100% love for him, a zealousness, a passion to live for him. He wants a relationship with his people and maybe the bar has been lowered here in America. We need to see that Jesus, he's got the bar right where it's supposed to be. He's expecting people to actually do what he tells them to do. And he shows up and he says to seven churches, to five of them, you're not doing what I asked you to do. So we get some stinging rebukes to the churches that were there at that time. And then we're transported up into the presence of heaven. That's where we go in chapters 4 and 5. 
we see that, wow, there's some problems down here on earth, so let's go and see what's going on in heaven. And we see that everything there is centered on this throne where God sits. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 8, you can see that they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. The picture here is very similar to what we've seen before in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 6, where the whole focal point of the heavenly scene, all of these crazy angelic beings and multitudes of people worshiping God, the whole focal point is Him and His holiness and His glory filling up the place, and worship is the theme of heaven. And some people think that the reason it goes from these churches straight to heaven is that's supposed to be representative of the rapture that these churches, particularly the reference there in Revelation 3.10, that he's going to rescue them from the hour of trial that is coming. Maybe that's a glimpse into the saints going straight up to heaven. Well, it doesn't really mention the rapture explicitly in the book of Revelation, but it gives us this great glimpse into the heavenly scene. And something unique to Revelation is Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 1 with me and look what happens here as John gets a glimpse into the presence of God. And it says, then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's, that's God the Father there seated on the throne. And he has a scroll written within and on the back and it's sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Big question going on in heaven. We've got this scroll, who's worthy? Well, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, I mean, we're weeping because we can't open the scroll. Weep no more. Behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Wow, that sounds powerful. And between the throne, verse 6, and the four living creatures and among the elders, here's John looking now for a lion, but he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. And here's what they sang in heaven when Jesus took the scroll. They said, worthy are you, Jesus, the lion, the lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, your precious, perfect blood, you ransomed. You purchased people for God. You paid for their sins. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. Going to be a very multicultural experience there in heaven. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, there's a voice of so many angels numbering myriads, tens of thousands of tens of thousands, and even thousands of thousands beyond that, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, this, this is going to happen, and there's going to come a moment when every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, is that not a powerful scene right there? Who can take the scroll? Well, no one can take the scroll except for this guy right here. Who's this guy? Well, he's the one who's worthy. That's who he is. And everyone there is overwhelmed with one desire to worship him because he is worthy. Do you believe there is going to come a moment when this entire planet as we know it will stop and every knee is going to hit the ground and every single mouth is going to say that Jesus Christ is is Lord, and there is going to be universal worship by all creatures of the Creator God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're busy talking about, like, what's going on in the White House. Like, that's a big deal, right? I mean, I was just reading the news as I was studying for this sermon, 
And I'm thinking how pointless all of the things you can find in the USA Today or the Washington Journal or whatever, whatever you go to for your news, Fox News, CNN, what pointlessness we're talking about when this is the future reality of the world that we live in. Everyone will worship Jesus. He is the one who is worthy of it all. Let's get that down for our next chapters four to five. Number three here, we want to see that Jesus is the only one worthy of worship. See, Jesus is the only one worthy of worship. And we should be ascribing and giving all that we've got to praise Jesus Christ. That should be the point of our life, to lift high his name and give him the glory and honor and blessing. That's the climax here, my friends. I mean, it says every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, the sea creatures are going to be worshiping him. I mean, what an amazing statement. Universal, all out, (coughs) choked up about it. Glory to Jesus Christ. Now, what's going to happen when he opens these seals? Well, this is going to be the beginning of the judgment. And really, that's our biggest chunk. You could put next to number four, all the way from chapter six, all the way to chapter 18 now. We're going to get to the bulk of the book. And the biggest section in the book is this time that we would call the tribulation. It's judgment. And so when we start opening the scrolls, the judgment starts to come from heaven down upon the planet. And it goes from seven, seven seals on the scroll, and then the last seal leads to seven trumpets. And so we have seven trumpet blasts that bring more judgment. And the last trumpet leads to seven bowls of wrath that we literally pour out, bowls of wrath upon the planet. And there's seven of them. And then the last bowl of wrath leads to Jesus Christ riding down on a white horse to defeat all of his enemies and to judge the world for its sin. So that's what happens after this universal worship. The focus is on judging. And let's just jump into the middle of the judgment here. The sixth seal, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Look at it with me. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. This does not sound good. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Wait, we just go from this heavenly scene where everyone's saying, worthy are you, glory, honor, blessing, and within one chapter, down on earth, People are just hiding. They're running away. They're looking for any crevice they can crawl into because the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come and everyone flee for your lives. See, the truth is we are all guilty of grossly underestimating the wrath that Jesus Christ has against sin. Sin is such a big problem to Jesus Christ that he would die to take our place so that our sin could be forgiven. But if you do not receive the gift of his righteousness, if you do not put your faith in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, he will judge you for your sin. That's what the revelation of Jesus Christ makes very clear. You might be ashamed of the wrath of Jesus, but he's not, my friends. That's what this book is saying. A great and terrible wrath is coming. It's called the day of the Lord. He puts his own name on it. Here they're very clear. It's the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. And who can stand? And so it gets intense. I mean, you thought that was bad. That's just the beginning. There's all all kinds of 
things that are just hard to even imagine what exactly is really happening as you read through chapter after chapter. And I would encourage you to do it sometime and read through and just picture this horrible judgment being poured out on planet Earth. Let's get down for point number four here. We want to see Jesus has wrath to judge sins. If there's no room in your view of Jesus for his wrath against sin, then you have the wrong Jesus. That's just how it is. Jesus Christ is not tolerating anyone's sin. He is going to judge it, and he makes it clear, especially here in the book of Revelation. Now, it's not all bad. Not everything happening during this tribulation time is 100% bad. If you look into chapter 7, you can see here that in chapter 7, um, there's this great revival, it appears, that breaks out among the Jewish people. And it describes 144,000 people coming in and setting themselves aside for Jesus Christ. And so it sounds like some people, particularly the Jewish people, are responding positively here to Jesus and this, this revelation of who he is, this judgment that's coming down on planet earth. And they're, and they're turning. And it describes some of these people who end up dying and some of these people who are now coming into the presence of God. And it describes them here what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Oh, for the robes of whiteness, as we sang. Well, if you look down at verse uh, 13, it says, Then one of the elders, this is Revelation 7, 13. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? Who are all these people clothed in the white robes? From where have they come? And I said to them, Sir, you know. And he said to me, I, like they're asking John, who are all these people? He's like, I don't know. You tell me. And they're like, well, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the people during this terrible time who are washing their robes and they made them white in how the blood of the lamb. They've been forgiven of their sins by faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at this beautiful description. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. God's a refuge for them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Does that sound good to anybody right there? Right? I mean, this beautiful idea of having this totally fulfilled relationship with Jesus where you're in his presence. It's like you've got a fountain of living water flowing inside of you. There's no more pain, crying, because God's wiping away the tears from your eyes. So we get a glimpse that some people, it seems like, might be getting saved, particularly 144,000 Jewish people. And some of them are even dying and going into the presence of God. But then in chapter 8, we get into the seven trumpets, and it's just more terrible judgment plagues just killing people and it'll just describe it um, uh, how, how graphic it is a, a third of the rivers all of a sudden turning to blood and uh, stars falling from heaven and it's it's just terrible look at chapter 9 jump into chapter 9 with me the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit one key you don't want to have is to the shaft of the bottomless pit and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke. Now this is a little disturbing. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power. These locusts were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plants or any tree. But only the people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So there's these locust scorpions coming out to attack the people who are not the people of God. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. That's just a glimpse. That's just one of the trumpets of this terrible judgment that's just wreaking havoc on planet Earth. And you would think that when I've got killer locust scorpions, well, they're, they're almost lethal lo locust scorpions attacking me. They won't let me die, even though I'm crying out for it. You would think that I would repent, that I would want Jesus Christ, that I would be done with my sin. But look at how the chapter ends, Revelation 9, verse 20. 
the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts amazing you would think that you, when you're seeing all of this judgment and the terrible things that are happening, you would for sure want to stop your sin and flee to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. But people in the stubbornness of their hearts do not cease their sin. They stay in it. Just rebellious against God. Even, even calling out for more wrath as it's being poured upon them. And this is really the issue. This is really the issue for all of us here this morning. Will we repent of our sins or will we have to be judged for it? These are the two options that are held before us. And this is said not just in Revelation. We're going to leave Revelation one time. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Let's just, we've got to turn in our Bibles uh, to another book at least one time here at Compass Bible Church. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where it, where it talks here. Uh, we know that there's a lot of eschatological emphasis in Thessalonians, a lot of talk about the future. In 1 Thessalonians, we've looked at, well, here we see it again in 2 Thessalonians. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, where it also mentions specifically the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says that we're writing to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. That's what God does. He grants us relief. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So let's talk about this future revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to come. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8. He's coming in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So why are all these people getting judged? Why is this wrath coming upon them? Well, it makes it very clear right here. It's not like there's some good people out there who aren't being judged and there's some bad people out there who will be judged. No, everyone will be judged because they do not know God and they don't obey the gospel. So the only reason that any of us will not be judged is because we obey the gospel. And what is the primary command that the gospel calls people like us to? What is the first word out of the mouth of John the Baptist or Jesus or the apostles? They call us to what, my friends? Repent of our sins. Not thinking that we can do it by our own good works, but by our faith in what Jesus has already finished on the cross for us and the power of what he accomplished when he rose from the dead. If you don't respond in repentance and faith, Jesus will inflict vengeance upon you. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. If Jesus isn't embarrassed about his wrath, then I don't want to be embarrassed about his wrath. I don't get to decide who Jesus is. I don't get to talk about the parts about Jesus that I prefer over the other parts. There's one Jesus Christ. And if you're going to love him, you love him for who he is. And he will come. And it will be terrible when Jesus comes. It will be terrible. And he inflicts his vengeance. And people suffer eternal destruction. And I can't even keep reading through so much wrath that will be poured out. So let's just get past it to chapter 19. Go back to Revelation. So we're taking a, taking a you're like, how are we going to get through the whole book? Or we're going to skip a few chapters here in the middle. That's how we're going to do this. All right? But we're making great time. We're actually going to make it, you guys. This is exciting. You're doing well. You're doing well. So the world, it won't repent. It allies it all together. Here's how the world's going to get peace. They're going to get peace as they unite against Jesus Christ going to be the greatest time of world peace in the history of the world fighting against Jesus and it's not going to work out very well for them and in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 we finally get to the moment where Jesus comes riding on the clouds and every eye sees him and the entire earth mourns this is the end the seventh seal led to the seven trumpets to the seven bowls and then we have this Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 it says, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and there's one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, 
He judges and makes war. And his eyes, there's those eyes again, like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And this time he's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They're following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords that's going to happen Jesus is going to ride down on a white horse and he is going to just trot over his enemies and they call out If you keep reading, they call out and they say all of the birds gather around, all of the crows and all of the ravens come hither. Every bird that can be summoned gather around because Jesus is going to leave their bodies in a heap and you can feast on their flesh, birds. This is what Jesus will do to his enemies. He will judge and he will make war. And if you and I deny this, we deny the very pages of Scripture. We deny what it says here. And you know what? The truth is, it's right for Jesus to do this. He's long delayed this judgment. He's given an offer to take the judgment on our behalf. And when he comes and rides down on a white horse, if you want to know the truth, I'd love to be riding on a white horse behind him, wouldn't you? And you better be for Jesus because you don't want to be against him, I'll tell you right now. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when he comes back. Maybe we need to have a church event where we all go find some white horses and work on our riding so we can be ready for this because this is going to happen. Jesus is going to return. And then it says what's going to happen next, and it's kind of a curveball. It's not maybe what you would think. We get this very interesting thing that happens in Revelation chapter 20. Look at it with me, Revelation chapter 20. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and he's holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. We've, we've read about that bottomless pit before. I don't want anything to do with it. And there's a great chain. And this angel, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit. Now, this is a lot better than these uh, locust scorpions. And he shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast, the false promise, prophet, the antichrist here, or its image. And had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, it's interesting. We would think that the story is over. Jesus has ridden out of heaven. He has judged his enemies. He has won the great victory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But no, it says that then he establishes a reign. And he reigns on the planet for a thousand years. Now, when we talk about eschatology, usually don't people don't approach eschatology like we're trying to uh, approach it. We're trying to approach it as a person, Jesus Christ. But usually when we get into eschatology, people want to argue about when things are going to happen. And nothing is argued about more in eschatology than this passage right here, the millennium, this time of a thousand years. And there's basically two most popular ways that you take the millennium today among Christian people. And this isn't a salvation issue. We're not going to judge anyone over this issue. I believe there's brothers in Christ who would think very differently than what I'm about to present to you. So we're not making this a dividing issue. But you have to decide how you're going to interpret that passage that we just read in a literal or symbolic kind of a way. 
Now, I'm reading through Revelation in a way like we can read it and we can kind of understand what's going on. I've been speaking to you this whole time in a literal sense. Like, let's just read through it and let's just take it for what it says and let's go try to figure it out. There are some people who would say we can't even do that with the book of Revelation. It's so apocalyptic, they would say. It's so symbolic that we can't even really understand what it even means. It could be just a random assortment of visions that John has. Do they even really go in order? And so there's some people who would not preach this sermon like we're doing here this morning because they think the book is just working on a much more symbolic level. Okay. Now, I want to give you four reasons why I think you should take this as a literal thousand years where Jesus is going to reign on planet earth so four reasons to interpret the millennium literally okay i told you this this position of whether you're pre-mill or ah-mill that's how we like to say it pre-millennial is what i'm going to present to you that there's a literal thousand years coming a millennial means there is no millennium coming we're actually in the millennium right now well i I don't agree with that so i'm going to try to present to you why i think we should think that there's a real thousand years coming upon the earth where Jesus is going to reign. And in fact, we might even be reigning with him during this time. Okay? Uh, the first reason we're going to give you here is not everything in the book is symbolic. I mean, we, we read through the letters to the seven churches. It's the writer, the Apostle John, who's written other books of the Bible, and he's writing this one. A lot of it sounds, sounds very similar to his other books. Now, I think there are symbols used throughout the book. And I think the symbols provide very powerful illustrations and allegories to what is going to happen in the judgment of God. For example, there is, I believe, a symbol in this passage where it says the dragon, uh, verse 2, look at verse 2 of Revelation 20, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So yeah, we've been referring to this guy as a dragon throughout the book of Revelation, but, but actually he's Satan. So I think it uses symbolic imagery throughout the book of Revelation, I just reject the idea that we have to take the whole thing symbolically. I mean, there's some people who will say, well, we're just throwing out a thousand years because that's a big number. And it's almost like Bible time people were stupid, so they didn't really know how it was going to work, so they just said a thousand years. I mean, that's how some people act about it. Well, they just threw out a big number. No, actually, they already used the number 144,000 earlier in the book of Revelation, so they know how to count to at least to a thousand. When he says a thousand years, I think there's a reason he's picking that number. uh, And basically, to take a symbolic stance, you just say, well, I don't even know what it could possibly mean. And you never come to a conclusion. I think he wants us to come to a conclusion about this. Now, if you want symbolic language, turn with me back to chapter 12. And let me give you one of my favorite symbols in all of the book of Revelation. If this isn't a beautiful picture of, of symbolism that's painted here in the book... I don't know what is, but the whole book, I I reject the premise that the whole book is symbolic, yet it uses great symbolism. Here's an example of a sign or a symbol that appeared in heaven. This is Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. See, we are going to get a little bit from the middle of the book. There you go. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. We've got some, we've got some people who've just given birth very recently here in this service with us this morning. They can testify to the agony and the birth pains, right? We get the picture of the lady who's about to give birth. And another sign appeared. You got that one picture, a woman about to give birth. And now here's another sign that appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. A great red dragon who's sweeping a third of the stars out of heaven. Who does that sound like, my friends? Sounds like the devil bringing some of the angels with him. And he... And uh, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, is that a, is that a powerful image to put in your mind right there? Picture, well, some of you guys are looking at me like, I don't want to think about this. Why are we talking about this right now? This is biblical, people, all right? It wants you to picture a woman who's there in her most vulnerable state, about to give birth to this baby, and here is a dragon ready to devour this baby coming out of the woman. Now, that's a powerful image. When the book of Revelation wants to paint a powerful symbolic image, it knows how to do it. 
So I totally agree with symbolism, but go back to Revelation chapter 20, and I don't think it's talking about symbolism here when it's talking about Satan being thrown into a pit for a thousand years. This isn't a big picture like that. It doesn't say a great sign appeared in, in heaven. No, it's an angel coming down from heaven, and he's binding Satan. So one reason I don't believe everything in the book is symbolic. The second reason I want you to believe in a literal millennium that's coming is the chronology of the book. All you have to do is go back to every chapter here. You can start in chapter 20, and you can go back to chapter 19, verse 17, and 19, verse 11, and go back to chapter 19, verse 1, and you'll notice these words that appear over and over. Then, then, after this, then, after this, then. It seems like we're getting the story of Revelation in chronological order to me. And so the thousand years comes after Jesus comes back. So that's one of the reasons I would argue we are not in the millennium right now because Jesus has not come back yet. And clearly here, the thousand years happens after Jesus comes back. You guys tracking with me on that one? Pretty straightforward. Revelation 20 comes after Revelation 19. That's why I think the thousand years is still yet to come in the future. Third one, the binding of Satan that's described here in this text. That there's a bottomless pit that's been emptied out of all its demons earlier in the wrath of God in Revelation. And so now we've got this nice bottomless pit here. And this angel takes Satan and he binds him and he closes the pit. And Satan is gone for a thousand years. I have a very hard time believing that Satan is bound right now. I think he is all about doing business right now. In fact, the Bible tells us that he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for people. People may be here this morning to devour Satan. Satan is alive and well right now. It is very hard for me to see that he would be bound right now, but that's what you have to believe if you're going to take this all symbolically. Do you guys believe that Satan is bound right now? doesn't seem like it from the news I'm reading. I think he's out there doing his thing. So I really struggle with the idea that Satan is bound right now. I'm looking forward to very much a time when Satan does not get to do what he does here on this planet. Can I get an amen from any, anybody on that? Let's say that amen loud enough so Satan can hear us. Amen. That's right, buddy. Your days are numbered. All right. Then we've got this very exciting thing called the first resurrection, where people who have died are being brought back to life and being appointed to reign with Jesus Christ in different capacities. And it makes it clear that this is a physical resurrection. The people are coming to life and they're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. People who might have died during the tribulation but had put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are now being united with him and they're going to reign with him. So we've got people coming back from the dead in a physical way. I'm not seeing any of that happening right now. Have you been seeing some resurrections going on? You see a resurrection. Will you please let me know about it? I'd be very interested in that. So these are four reasons why I have, it's just so hard for me to see that the, we are in the millennium right now. That's what the amillennialist will tell you. We know what amillennial means. No millennium is really what they're, what they're saying. We're in the millennium right now. No, I don't think so. I don't think Satan's bound right now, and I don't think we're experiencing a resurrection from the dead right now. So I think there's going to come a time of a thousand years in the future on this planet when Jesus will reign on the earth, and some of you will be reigning with him. Does that not sound awesome to anybody else? I would love to live in the kingdom of, Je I, hey, I've already said I love America, but the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that sounds amazing. That's going to happen. But even that, even the reign of Jesus will not be good enough. And so after the thousand years, Satan will be brought out. He will be defeated once again, and then we will have the judgment of souls where they will be divided, and they will be cast into the, the place of the lake of fire. That's the end of Revelation chapter 20. And so look with me at Revelation chapter 21. And here's what's going to eventually happen after the thousand years of the millennium. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The millennium, even that, as awesome as that sounds to me, will not be good enough. Even with Satan out of it and Jesus reigning, no, we're going to make a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea is even no more. And I saw the holy city, this new place where all of us are going to live. It's a new Jerusalem, and it's coming down out of heaven from God. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look at this, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And here's what God's going to do when we get to be with him in this city, the new Jerusalem. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore. No more of it, for the former things have passed away. How about an amen for that? No more dying, no more crying, no more pain, a new heaven and a new earth where we get to finally be God's people, where he reigns over us the way that he's always wanted to. There's so much glory that we could get into in the new Jerusalem. Just dump, jump down with me here to verse 16. Just one amazing thing that I want to point out about this city we're going to spend eternity in. The city lies four square. Its length, it's as long as it is wide. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. And if you look down, it's length, width, and height. So it's like a cube. It's as long as it is wide, and it's that high. And whatever it is, 12,000 stadia. Well, that's not the, I don't know what that means. So I go down to my footnote down there. You see what your footnote says? It says about what? 1,380 miles. A city coming down out of heaven. That's 1,000. 380 miles wide, long, and high. Can you imagine? You think we got big cities, right? Can you imagine something like that? Now, I know that distance. I tried to find something that would kind of put that in perspective for us. That's from here. If we were to leave right now and go to San Antonio, Texas, my friend, the Alamo, that's how wide the city of the New Jerusalem is going to be. That's how long it's going to be. That's how high it's going to be. I don't know. My family lives in San Antonio, Texas. My parents live there, I should say. My dad's a pastor there. I've taken many road trips. It is a lot of nothing between here and San Antonio, Texas. It is a long ways. If three of us went for it and we were ready to drive straight through, we could get there in possibly 18 and a half hours, but I would probably want to stop a couple times and get some snacks. So it would probably take us 20 hours to drive there. A city that takes 20 hours to drive the entire distance. It's that wide, it's that long, it's that high. That's why I, this new thing happened on, on Google when I was typing into San Antonio. It said, maybe you want to take an airplane. Do you see that? It's like, maybe, maybe you don't want to drive this one, buddy. Maybe you should, we could buy you an airplane ticket, okay? Like you would need to fly from one side of the city to the other. That's just one little detail that I have time to give you about this place called the New Jerusalem, a literal city on a literal new earth where you and I are going to be in God's presence as his people forevermore. Now, if this isn't getting your attention or making an impression upon you, I don't know what will, but go to chapter 22 because I know some of us, we ask this question, when is it going to happen? How can these things be? When will they be? It's overwhelming. So let's get this down for our last, for number five here, chapters 19 to 22. We want to see that Jesus will reign both on this earth in the millennium and on the new earth in the city of the new Jerusalem. And you know it will always be daytime in the new Jerusalem. And there will be no sun that lights up the city. The glory of Jesus Christ himself will light up the city from here to San Antonio, Texas, long, wide, and high. And we'll experience it. We'll bask in it. We'll live in it. When is this going to happen? Well, look at Revelation 22, verse 6. It says, just in case this is hard to believe, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And here's a word straight from Jesus, verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. First time I ever read the book of Revelation, I read it straight through. I couldn't stop reading it. I was a little boy. I was in the back seat of the family Ford Aerostar. Anybody remember the Ford Aerostar? The slide door, you know what I mean? I was in the back seat, and I was driving down the 5 freeway on Grandma's house, probably to go sit at the kids' table, and I read the entire book of Revelation in the back seat of the car. I put my head up against the window, and I looked up into the sky, and I started to think about what is going to happen. We have not seen anything yet, my friends. We have not seen anything yet of what is coming upon the world. And I hope that you will take your faith in Jesus Christ 
from the kiddie table where it may be today and start thinking grown-up thoughts about the glory of Jesus Christ. Start really seeing him for who he truly is, but stop underestimating the power and the splendor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much that we could go through this entire book of your Bible here this morning and that we could get the unveiled glory revealed to us of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, let us worship him. Let us see the high standards that he has for us as his people. And let us, let us live like he's coming soon, coming to judge, coming to reign. God, let us be ready. God, I just know the world isn't ready for this message. They're not ready for the return of Jesus. God, may we be people who are ready. May we spread this message. May we live every day like Jesus is coming soon. May we long for his appearing. Thank you so much for giving us this vision through the Apostle John. God, I pray that it will impact us, that it will be something that we think about on a regular basis, that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming, and he said he's going to come soon, and every eye will see him riding on a white horse out of the clouds, and he will judge and make war, and he will reign and the world will finally know a real peace, a real righteousness. And he will create a new heavens and a new earth. God, we long to be your people. We long to dwell with you. We cry out, Maranatha, we want Jesus to come. Let his kingdom come, we pray. And let it come soon. Amen.